How has your family damaged you? If you had a time machine, which of your mistakes would you fix? What turns you on in the workplace? Welcome to Confessions, the podcast where you get to hear different people confess. So, hi Rory, thank you very much for for coming on the show. How are you? Very well indeed, great pleasure. Yeah, wonderful to be on. Um, And how are you feeling about being on? Oh, not bad. Um, I I mean, having said that, we've only just started. I mean, I might feel very differently in 20 (laughs) minutes, but uh, so far, as with all these things, I go into it with a spirit of naive optimism, I think. I think that's one of the things, if you work in the advertising industry, uh, one of the requirements is, to be honest, um, a senseless optimism. Mm. Um, Because you have to believe that this time will be different. There's a lot to be said for experimentation and and exploration, but what is often not said about that, I think, is the spirit in which people undertake it. it There has to be a sense of humour there as well, I think. Well, one of David Ogilvy's great quotes, at least I've never actually seen it reliably attributed to him, but it always is. I think one of the great things is if you gain a reputation um, for uh, very, very good um, aphorisms, lots of aphorisms get attributed to you, which you had nothing to do with. Um, I have to continually go into denial about the phrase, you know, that the conscious mind thinks it's the Oval Office when in reality it's the press office. And I'm pretty sure it's Jonathan Haidt, but he's not sure that it's him either, although I think it is. Um, David Ogilvy, one of the things I only came across a few months ago, is his great thing, some of the best ideas come as jokes. Try to make your thinking as humorous as possible. Mm, I like that. And so you have to exist in this kind of parallel universe where silly things can happen. You, and, and in order to, op, to sort of occupy that universe, you've got to have a kind of uh, ridiculous optimistic side. Yes. It reminds me of there's this chap called Yak Panksep. And I know we're going off topic slightly, but he did a lot of research on play and rats. And he found that as soon as you introduce the smell of a cat into a kind of a rat cage, they completely just kills all the playfulness. Um, and there's something about that playfulness being the space in which interesting things can happen. Um, so I think I know what you mean. Yeah, I think I think there, there is an element where if you focus too much on the, and this is where it gets very problematic because business is, of course, deeply infected by defensive decision-making, mm. which is the mode of thought of most people working in an institution or in a large organization is don't visibly cock up. Uh, you know, you can make decisions, um, and when I say visibly cock up, what it is, it's driven by not necessarily fear of failure, but fear of blame. And there's a subtle distinction between those two. And it is interesting how people, as they become more senior, tend to suffer more from that kind of fear of blame. I know exactly what you mean. And as people climb the organization, they become more conservative they become part of governance and and they tend towards the norm and of course boards i mean not entirely insanely since you know there are decisions where board directors potentially facing jail um but boards in terms of that um uh, that governance become very very heavily focused on and, and there's a danger of course that the entrepreneurial spirit kind of dies and you create a kind of box ticking regulatory culture um, and that, I think, leads to a kind of exploitative capitalism in a way. Mm. 
Um, I think the bit of capitalism that really pays back to the consumer is its adventurous and experimental side. Mm -hmm. And so if you if you become deeply managerial, what tends to happen is you focus all your attention on kind of efficiency gains, which the consumer probably enjoys less than you think, mm. uh, and which also has deleterious effects on employees, employee morale, suppliers in particular. So, you know, quite often you can uh, reach efficiency gains by screwing your suppliers over. And in the short term, that undoubtedly makes the balance sheet look a lot healthier. In the long term, what it does is it changes the nature of the supplier relationship to one of mutual value creation. And instead, it becomes one of kind of grudging acquiescence. And I think it's very important to make the distinction. I, I always do this. Um, there's a great book, actually, by a Russian author called Marina something or other, which is called The Middleman Economy. And it's all about the surprising value that middlemen add to uh, economic value, whereas in standard economic theory, they're mostly viewed as a cost or an inefficiency. And there's a very, very big difference between transactional capitalism and relational capitalism. And most relationships in business involve a mixture of the two, patently, okay? Um, but the relational element, it's very, very easy to effectively remove the relational element and turn capitalism transactional. And in the short term, it makes you look as if you've done a wonderful job. By no longer investing in a relationship, uh, you seem to have saved money at first. In the longer term, what you've probably done is you disincentivize suppliers from adding any value to your business in ways that you haven't specified in advance. And I'd argue that a huge amount of in innovation actually bubbles up from suppliers. And so their incentive to invest in the relationship by adding value to you in ways that you hadn't requested beforehand, their propensity to do that may actually determine the greater part of the supplier relationship. I always argue if you're an ad agency, um, and you're doing your job right, a very simple brief to an ad agency is, have you created more value for your client this year by doing things you weren't asked to do than by doing things you were? Now, if you have a kind of very procurement-driven relationship where essentially you're paid um, on, on a cost-plus basis and where um, uh, essentially every three years the business will be put up for repitch and the winner of that repitch will be decided largely on price, okay? You've created the kind of relationship in which it makes no sense to invest. Hmm. So you've said lots of interesting things there, and there are some meta observations I'd like to make as well. So one of the interesting things is that the efficient experience is really the most delightful experience from a, a consumer standpoint. But the meta observation I would make is I've, I've noticed you do something that I have a tendency to do as well, which is you're more at home talking about ideas. And there's a sense in which, um, at a Freudian level, that's a, a, a one sort of tactic. But there's also a sense in which people won't really grasp the ideas unless they understand the man. They won't really understand who you are. Um, and, and that will affect their understanding of the ideas. So my intention here is to sort of... Uh, are you intriguing me? Are you saying that actually preferring to talk at the level of ideas is a kind of evasive strategy? Because it might be. That might be a fair thing. 
The ideas um, come from somewhere. They come from something interesting about you. And there's a sense in which without communicating that thing which is unique or or kind of di diversive about you, those ideas will remain at quite an intellectual level for many people. Well, I think what's interesting, I suppose where many of my ideas come from is simply... I consider that most things are what you might call a bit of a placebo, okay? Mm -hmm. In other words, when you give someone a drug, there is, whether the drug, if the drug's purely a placebo, the response is purely a placebo response. In other words, you're not responding to chemistry or pharmacology, you're responding to context setting, meaning, and emotional, physiological response to some set of events, okay? And then there's the obviously there's the pharmacological effect if the drug is also a drug. Now it's worth remembering that drugs are also placebos. Placebos are not drugs, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Which is why most people set out to isolate that placebo effect to prove the efficacy of the drug. And what no pharmaceutical company seems to have an incentive to do is to maximize the placebo effect, because after all, that's working too. And so my argument is that there are lots of things to which we respond at both a conscious level and a visceral level. Um, yes. When we regard something as viscerally unpleasant, okay, let's say you've been set out, essentially, the job of procurement officer, and your job is to slightly screw over a very loyal and reliable supplier who has had a relationship with your firm for 15 years. Okay, and you find that act viscerally distasteful, even though it's economically rational. You should not entirely try and suppress the visceral response because it's the product of many million years of evolution. And you should instead look for deeper or meta reasons why you respond that way. And, and that applies to, by the way, I mean, I would argue that something like a government policy has both. Um, um, you know, a conscious economic response, which is equivalent to the pharmacological effect of a drug, but it also has a visceral response. And at the moment, when we devise policy, we look only at the economics and we completely ignore the placebo component. Now, an interesting example of that, which just interests me um, from a kind of experimental point of view, is most right-wing people aren't in favour of too much tax, okay? In particular, when the tax is used for redistribution. And if you ask them why, they'll give you a kind of post-rationalised answer, which is, you know, uh, it's not fair, I've earned this money, um, why should it be taken away and given to people who don't deserve it? Okay, now that makes them A, look like bastards, okay, to some extent, um, B, I'd also argue it's not the real reason. Because one interesting thing that suddenly emerges is if you propose a guaranteed basic income, which is quite heavily redistributive, but in a different way, quite a lot of right-wing people like it. Mm. So just to give an example, I think Milton Friedman supported the guaranteed basic income. Uh, Richard Nixon was in favour of it as well. Okay, Neither of them, you know, exactly left-wing um, uh, characters and what's interesting about it is the guaranteed basic income preserves incentive structures in a way that redistribution doesn't because under a guaranteed basic income someone who works now it does redistribute a lot of wealth because the tax rate 
on amounts you earn above and beyond the necessary amount to survive uh, has to be markedly higher, or at least you know a degree higher, to actually cover the cost of the basic income. But interestingly, if you're all on basic income, one, there are two pretty significant differences. One, you have to all agree what that basic income is. It's a collective universal, which means that the government can't um, essentially rob one sector of the population, typically a sector that doesn't vote for it, to bribe a sector of the population that does. Okay, because it's a kind of universally fair thing. Second attribute of it is that basic incentive structures are preserved in that if you and your neighbor are both on basic income for someone with two kids and you work 15 hours a week and your neighbor works 10 at the same job, uh, you are still five hours of labor richer than your neighbor. But so the point you're making is is well understood, I I think. So man is a rationalizing, not rational creature. This is a view reflected by Kahneman, obviously thinking fast and so, Jonathan Haidt, Elephant Rider Path, also Nietzsche, who writes thoughts are the shadows of our emotions. I'm interested in specifically how this applies to you. You've talked quite quickly about policy and marketing, which is familiar territory. But the intriguing idea for me is that this is also true of you, uh, Rory, that behind the, the the ideas, there is something very interesting about the emotion, about what drives you. And so that that's the point of confessions, to try and reveal that there's, if you like, something un under the hood, which is making these ideas kind of possible, which is probably quite a personal thing. So, so for the benefit of people, uh, including yourself, potentially, who don't understand how this format works in detail, um, I have three decks of cards which I have entitled Regular, Revealing and Extreme, which contain a series of questions um, about, about you uh, and about, um, about your life. And uh, so the idea is that first you make a decision which deck of cards you want to go through. Do you want to go for kind of regular or uh, the more revealing ones or the kind of the extreme ones? And then I ask some of those questions and we get to learn a little bit more about you. Oh, oh, there's another rule, which is that if you're unhappy with any question, you just say pass, and we just kind of move on seamlessly uh, to the next one. Is it so, possible to have a mixture of those cards? Well, absolutely. In fact, it is. If you if you go for extreme any in any event, it's sort of unbroadcastable. If I just um, you know ask all the extreme questions, so I actually mix those in with the the revealing ones. Um, but yes, you can you can go for a mix if you like. Yes, I, I mean a sort of random mix of a third strikes me as fine. Um, I mean, I'm intrigued to know how the the extreme ones are unbroadcastable, but go go ahead. Um. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's, let's give it a go. Um, so, the first question is, um, uh, I've sort of shuffled them at random, um, so anything could come up. Um, what was your most foolish decision? The one that that keeps you awake at night. Oh, I mean, financially, I sold a flat in London. Um, uh, <laughs> it doesn't keep me awake at night, though, interestingly. Um, I don't really have anything that keeps me awake at night at the moment. I've had things. I've, weirdly, if, if I'm going to go into self-revelation, for about a year of my life, I suffered from extreme anxiety and panic attacks. And that is a wonderful lesson, albeit unbelievably painfully learned, in the ex to the, the extent to which you're at the mercy of autonomic 
responses in your body. Mm. It's a kind of feedback failure, I think, isn't it? Where anxiety essentially leads to, um, for example, heart palpitations, which then goes on to make you more anxious. And so the whole thing feeds back. And I've pretty much controlled that now. Um, uh, I think I occasionally get a kind of flashback effect about once a year or once every six months or so at entirely unpredictable moments, I might add. And so that's uh, that's an interesting one. But at the moment, um, perhaps, actually, I mean, the only thing that's worried me is that the effort to overcome this problem has made me slightly more anhedonic or has made me slightly more, maybe it's just a, pros uh, you know, uh, maybe it's just a feature of aging, that the uh, the highs and the lows have become shallower. Mm. Um, but no, in terms of um, uh, regret, I try and avoid it as far as possible because, I mean, as my father taught me, look, he said, all of you will have had decisions you nearly made which might have been fantastic. I mean, it's impossible to look at the parallel universe. And I'm also, um, I, you know, one of the interesting things, I suppose, learning from decision science is uh, you learn some fairly useful uh, lessons, for example, around satisficing. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, uh, occasionally I'll, I, uh, I mean, the, the interesting thing is I think that perfectionism, uh, that extreme perfectionism uh, is highly deleterious to happiness mm -hmm. for all sorts of reasons. One, you'll end up permanently neurotic. Uh, two, you'll um, uh, essentially set yourself uh, uh, aims and ambitions which are unattainable or in many ways undesirable. I mean, I, I, I have a certain soft spot for this school of thought which says that social media, by dint of presenting everybody else with the edited highlights of your own life, hmm. um, is, is an unattractive kind of signaling battle. And I try um, as hard as I can not to get into that regret uh, game because uh, it doesn't lead anywhere ultimately. And um, uh, it's also, I think, you know, I suppose there were opportunities where I could have worked for Google early on. Um, there were probably opportunities where uh, I fail, I completely failed to make large amounts of money from spotting the internet very early. These are all financial ones. I don't have any significant romantic regrets. Um, uh, being fairly monogamous, uh, you know, I don't have any uh, really strong regrets in that field. Um, I can imagine that um, as far as possible, if you can minimize regret, um, uh, that's a fairly good recipe, if not for happiness, at least for contentment. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, the house thing does occasionally cause me to kick myself because, you know, I was probably, you know, uh, I'd bought a flat for 116,000, which at the height probably became worth a million. I sold it for less than a third of that. Mm. And I sold it not because I needed to sell it, but strangely, um, for almost moral reasons, which is that I could have just kept it empty and just left it going up in money, but that seemed a you know a fundamentally wrong thing to do. Um, and also, uh, I found the business of finding new tenants generally irksome, <laughs> and so there was no financial reason to dispose of this property. And um, uh, that sort of you know, occasionally I wake up and it pisses me off a, 
a bit. But it's worth remembering, by the way, um, it is possible to become far more philosophical in one's approach to uh, wealth and financial circumstances, which is, A, if you have tastes that are different to other people, it saves you a lot of money. Okay, the most expensive thing is to compete for exactly the same thing that everybody else is competing for to a point where, by the way, I think being very rich um, becomes slightly moronic in that um, the very rich are a very narrow category of people and they all find themselves living in the same place with each other, competing for exactly the same status markers, because the only people worth competing with is each other your frame of reference becomes very narrow. And therefore, strangely, your frame of options in terms of your expenditure also becomes extremely narrow. But of course, most people like to fit in and that comes with a, a price tag. Yeah, and the, the price tag of fitting in with the very rich is immensely high and also not very oh. interesting, by yeah, the way. It keeps the out. And my next question now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. But no, I'm, I'm, uh, the regret thing is interesting because I'm very yeah. sympathetic to that school of thought of, of people. Um, I think it's the two guys at the University of Essex. Is it Toombs and um, uh, Loomis or whatever um, uh, who make the point that you, you can explain a large amount of human behavior by effectively regret minimization? In other words, when you make a purchase decision or equally when you get married or whatever you do, uh, what you're doing is trying to minimize the risk of regret. Dissonance reduction it used to be called in, in my day, and, and it has a strong link to post-rationalization and people's tendency you know, to say, well, whatever I did was for the best. Well, adaptive, quite... pre adaptive preference formation, mm. which was spotted by Aesop and is written a lot of, about by John Elster, okay, now, I would regard, you know, an economist might regard that as a bias or an irrationality. I'd regard it as a bit of a miracle. Now, the interesting question to ask, and I ask myself this question, is if you redesign the world so people can use rather a lot of it, adaptive preference formation, I mean, right? Mm -hmm. You make people happier. Fair? Yes, that's now, UX in my language. Well, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an example of this. When I was at university, you had this strange system where you had a, a, a ballot for student accommodation in the second year. And if you weren't a scholar, you were somewhere between number one and 104 or something like that. Okay. And in the second year, the first 10 people got the first choice. Uh, second group got second dibs. Third, uh, third group got the third dibs and so on. In the third year, it was reversed, okay? Now, interestingly, as far as I can remember, everybody was happy with their position on the ballot because they all told themselves a different story about what they wanted, uh, which simply reduced dissonance with their position on the ballot. So people at the top would go, well, it's much more important. You don't want to be at the bottom in the second year because you'd be miles away from college. And actually, uh, what it means is that, you know, all the rooms in the third year are kind of okay. So who cares? Whereas the other people would go, well, you know, you take a bit of a punt in the second year, but let's face it, you're not going to be in college anyway. And it means you get a palace in year three. Now, I've made the proposal that you can use the same thing to redesign the interior of trains. So if there's an upside to standing and, an up, and a downside to sit, sitting, okay, you redesign the train so that people standing get a view out of the window and a little bit of a table and a couple of USB chargers, where the people sitting don't get so much of a view and only have a cup holder, okay? Mm -hmm. 
you can actually get people who are forced to stand to decide they're happier with the arrangement anyway, and you can actually get people to choose to stand. It's only when you can't create a narrative that puts a positive spin on B that people become obsessed with A. So this links to Dan Ariely. He he's done a lovely little study of the Economist's kind of pricing strategy online. But a more familiar territory is for me the way that I present options to clients. We typically present three options. So this has a kind of a cognitive benefit, the kind of the rule of threes. But more importantly, you always present people with a silver, bronze, and a gold option. And so you get very senior people who are quite risk averse, and they will almost invariably plump for the middle road. So they actually perhaps want to do something and invest in something, but they don't want to be seen to be, to be extravagant. So there's always a, a kind of an upper limit, which is, is set out of bounds deliberately so people can more easily post-rationalize the, the, the middle option, the silver option. The other one I've heard yeah. is that some banks, when they offer five levels of risk, hmm. build extra margin, weirdly, not into three, but into two and five, two and four. Mm-hmm. And the argument there is nobody wants to choose three, the middle level of risk, because it looks like fence sitting. Yes. And it doesn't really signal anything at all. Um, one makes you look like a coward. Five makes you look insane. So everybody has a natural visceral comfort with two and four. And so they build extra margin into those two options. This is used as a mind reading trick as well. Mind readers will offer you a choice of of five cards and statistically you're far more likely to pick cards two and four than you are one five or three um, and so this is used to um, make predictions about um, you know what cards people will will choose on mass because our idea of random is slightly wrong isn't it, it, yeah, you, it yeah. you, you look you look at um, a, a pattern of dots on a page and of course, the truly random distribution of dots will have quite distinct clusters. Mm. Whereas everybody thinks what random means is a whole series of equally spaced dots. Mm. And this obviously leads to problems with things like, you know, points of concentration of certain cancers, which is you would weirdly expect to have clusters simply by random distribution. And people find it very difficult to get their heads around this. Look at us, though. We're doing the thing that we do, which is we've taken a personal question and immediately elevated it, sublimated it into the ideas space. So I'm going to try and bring you back down. Um, who would you most like to impress with your work and why? Um, very good question. Uh, it, it, interestingly, I'd always try and have a, uh, a multiple target audience, by the way. I think that having, uh, I think, here we go, oh God, we're back in the idea space. There's some French Johnny, I can't remember which one, but some French philosopher said, you know, having your happiness dependent on the opinions of other people uh, is fundamentally dangerous because something that's very important to you, your happiness, uh, then becomes in the hands of someone over whom you have no control, okay? Mm -hmm. So generally seeking popular acclaim is a dangerous thing. I would argue that seeking it in one field only is very dangerous. Hoping to be respected both by, in my case, let's say it's a mixture of academics and, and people. You know, if people in the conventional ad world regard me as a wanker, I've kind of failed. If people in academia regard me as a charlatan, I'm a bit of a charlatan, okay? I, I'm happy being a bit of a charlatan because I think academic standards are 
a, a, a kind of not very applicable uh, to uh, the, you know many many practical solutions. Mm. Okay, um, but you know I'm I'm happy being accused of being a little bit of an impresario and showman. I can cope with that. I can cope with being uh, regarded as a bit of a nerd by people in conventional ad world. And then there's the wider behavioral science community, and then there's myself, which is can I look in the mirror uh, every morning and basically go, uh, yeah, um, you know you can be reasonably content. Uh, with what you've achieved. By the way, expecting any more than that, I think, is um, uh, is probably on a hiding to nothing. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that it, it's, it's, you know, many, many people who are genuinely extraordinary probably don't look at themselves with, you know, don't derive huge joy from their achievements, not nearly as much as they predicted beforehand. Mm. Um, and, and also, um, if you do derive huge joy from your achievements, then um, uh, it's, potentially dangerous, I think. Uh, you've got to have, you know, an element of self-doubt. I always remember something I think Alfred Brendel, the pianist, said, which is the moment he goes on stage and no longer feels a bit nervous, okay, that's when he's going to retire. Mm. And um, I, I, so, you know, I do a lot of public speaking. Now, I imagine when Brendel gave his first concert, he was bricking it. And by the end of Brendel's career, he was nervous, but not, you know, going to the bathrooms to puke, right? And, I'm, you know, I'm guessing you get a bit less nervous when you do something more frequently, partly because if you've done it a lot successfully, people will allow you a cock up. It's worth it is worth remembering that, that, you know, there's a path dependency to when you make mistakes. If you turn up late for your first day at work, it's much more damaging than if you turn up late for your 107th day at work. Okay, so reputationally, there's a very large path dependency, which probably means that when you establish a reputation, you do become a bit less scared. But in terms of who you want to impress, um, it's um, I'd always want to have a multiple target audience. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't want, uh, you know, you know and, and that, that applies to a diverse target audience and everything from, uh, you know, ethnicity, culture, age group, uh, you know, general demographics. Um, uh, one, you know, one thing I think is despicable um, is I always remember a really interesting lesson when I was at university, which is a, a, the former uh, senior fellow of the college uh, once said, he said, the interesting thing he said about being an academic, he said, is you can fall out with a master of the college. That's absolutely fine. He said, doesn't make much difference to your life. You can have a massive row with a guy if you want. He said, but there are three people you should never fall out with, which is the head porter, the head gardener, and the head chef. And one other thing I, I would hold great store by is that you care about the respect of other people, regardless of their seniority or demographic position. Mm. Um, you know, I, I regard that as a kind of the fact that you're, you know, someone who's rude to waiters. Okay. I mean, I find it alarming sometimes when you go out to places like Southeast Asia, where people have become used to you know, a degree of deference and servitude, uh, where people are, are you know, are quite casually abrupt uh, with people bringing them a cup of tea or something. I still find that, you know, in cultures where you have, you know, uh, you know, where that kind of thing is routine, I find it very, very unpleasant. I also actually don't like deference. So when you say, you know, do you, I mean, bear in mind I'm Welsh, okay. Now, an interesting aspect of Wales, Ireland, Scotland, New Zealand, I'd argue, Canada, okay, 
Australia, places with, I would argue, a kind of fairly high Celtic component, or if you want to get into this, low um, status difference, okay, is the whole grovel thing isn't really much done. I like flying Qantas, right? I'd much rather fly Qantas than a Middle Eastern airline, because in the Middle Eastern airline, they're kind of obsequious and groveling to you, whereas in, in Qantas, they're really, really helpful, but it's matey. And I'm much mm. more comfortable. So I'm strangely, for someone whose politics are right of centre, I'm weirdly egalitarian in the form of social interactions I like. So that's interesting. It's an observation I've, I've made myself. And I suspect there's a link between your freedom of thought and your irreverence. That's to say, I think if you were terribly worried about what important people thought of what you were going to say or think, then that would somewhat constrain your ability to... Um, to move around in conceptual space. Um, but I'm going to move the... Also, respect for humour, when humour is to some extent, uh, humour mm. tends to punch up, not down. Mm. Um, and, and not always, um, you know, I, I, you know uh, but uh, I think uh, there's something interesting there which is worth discussing, uh, which is that um, uh, humour is, to some extent, whatever else it is, it tends to be irreverent. And I believe in humour as an ideation tool. As I said, try to make your thinking as funny as possible. Um, because, uh, you know, we don't... I mean, the fascinating thing is that we don't actually know uh, why humour evolved. It seems to appear very, very early. It's kind of present in animals. You mentioned play in rats, for example, mm -hmm. okay? That playfulness and humour, I guess, is often playfulness in some sort of verbal form. But... Um, you know, again, when something very strange and apparently irrational uh, is essentially placed on the motherboard in evolutionary terms, I think we should take it seriously and assume that uh, unless we have massive evidence to the contrary, uh, we should assume that it's still valuable. Yes, I agree. I'm going to ask a new question. Um, describe your worst dating experience. I've had very few. I married. I married and actually got into a relationship very, very young. Um, I um, so you know uh, this is the complete opposite. Bear, bear in mind, this is nineteen eighty nine. Okay, you didn't just casually send photographs of your genitals to people, or whatever <laughs> it is that people do nowadays. I find I find modern dating very strange. Um, but of course, all I mean, I occasionally do a terrible thing, which is. I'm fascinated by, uh, I, and I do, I, I do the terrible thing where I do mock terrible dates with my wife, and <laughs> I, so I experiment with my own wife on what's a massive turn off. Okay, now, um, so you've got our attention, Roy. Yeah, it's a terrible thing to do because it's kind of, but it, it always fascinates me, which is there are certain things uh, about any kind of dating experience which are entirely kind of again they're they're evolutionary in origin mm -hmm. uh, jeffrey miller has this really interesting theory that uh, women have a kind of psychopath detector test which they do when dating so there are certain things which are massively unattractive to the opposite sex so interestingly losing your temper with a waiter who tips soup on your trousers like losing your temper massively would be a really, really unattractive thing, I think, on a date. Mm. And interestingly, it's characteristic of kind of 
psychopathic or, or sociopathic behavior. And if you think about it, women have to be really, really careful to avoid getting hooked by a psychopath because they can be very, very convincing and you have an absolutely fantastic time right up to the point where you discover he's disappeared and your bank account's empty. Yeah. Um, so I occasionally do this terrible thing, which is not having had much experience of dating because I'm my relationship with my wife started when I was about 23. Um, um, but it always fascinates me that there are things that are a complete detumescence turn off. <laughs> um, and um, what, what is it? What, what, what I find really, I mean, re real nerdiness is kind of a bit of a turn off, isn't it? Mm. Um, uh, anything that um, uh, selfishness is, it's very funny too, because obviously I, mean, I work in, you know, um, I occasionally say things designed to scandal. I shouldn't use it as a kind of experimental um, uh, 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 vehicle. But I mean, the classic one would be bringing flowers home and going, if you sleep with me tonight, you can have these flowers, which fascinates <laughs> me as an experiment because it completely destroys the value of the flowers, right? <laughs> Which is it's somehow necessary for certain behaviors to appear to be entirely lacking in self-interest for them to have meaning. There has to be poetry, for sure. I mean, we may both know that the flowers and chocolates have something to do with that, but it, it can't be a, a direct... Um, no, no, it, I mean, uh, so that would be, be experiment number one. Experiment, what would experiment number two be? That would be, that'd be one. Um, uh uh, so uh, this is a terrible thing I have to confess to, but I do occasionally, you know, I occasionally do things which um, uh, my wife is a uh, Anglican vicar, and and in my view is too altruistic, um, uh, because you know I think I think altruism is something that's uh, needed in uh, balanced quantities. Uh, but I mean, I'll occasionally do things deliberately designed to wonder my wife, like, but you, but at the ticket barriers in the station, you pushed in front of that woman with a push chair. And I actually didn't realize I'd done this, okay? And I just replied, you snooze, you lose, which is the thing in the world my wife is least likely ever to say, okay? It's an entirely kind of, you know, capitalistic, slightly selfish phrase. And I occasionally do this just to annoy her. Um, uh, and I shouldn't do this, really, should I? But, but um, it's probably irresistible at some level to use... Um, and, and occasionally I'll do experiments with my children um as well uh oh, they're okay. non-identical twins so not the best kind uh but um for experimental purposes but yeah. nonetheless you can do uh, one interesting thing by the way about having twins but it's also i think interesting about anybody with more than one child i don't think do you think that anybody if you take the nature nurture debate and the sort of politically correct view is that it's 100 percent nurture okay mm -hmm. or that everything is socially constructed do you really think that anybody with two kids deep down really believes that? Because the personality differences, bear in mind that they've been exposed to pretty much the same, certainly early childhood environment, right? Okay, the personality, I do have kids, um, but if you have more than one child, the innate personality differences are so stark Yes, um, I do have. I have three daughters. I think you have two. It would two. It, to me, it would require an act of basically willful self-delusion to suggest mm. that there aren't strong inherited characteristics. 
That's not to say I'm a eugenicist, you understand. I'm merely saying that some things are str seem to be strongly innate. I think there's a, a book, I think it's called something like The, the Nurture Illusion, though, which suggests that there's a third way. So we often present this... Oh, peer group. Binaries, yes. Peer group, yeah. I think. Can, is that Elizabeth can... Rich Harris, it might be, I think, yeah, is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so actually, uh, she tends to say it's, it's um, inherited innate plus peer group and that yeah. parents actually have a remarkably um, feeble yeah. effect yeah. except to the fact that as i've occasionally argued uh what you're doing when you choose a school you pretend it's all about the educational qualities of the school and its exam results it's mm. actually about choosing a peer group isn't it yes now now there's an interesting thing which is i think an argument for satisficing okay um, I would argue that um, sending your kids to a very, very elite school is inherently quite risky because it's other than sending them to a really, really dodgy school, it's the way they're most likely to end up on crack. <laughs> so there might be an argument for satisficing an education, which is you want your kids to go to a fairly good school, but actually becoming hyper-competitive in where they go uh, this is one of those interesting questions, okay? So this is the thing you that is true but you can't say, which is that when you choose, for example, a life partner, a large part of your decision-making is actually, we talk about it as though it's an optimising decision, mm. but a large part of the influence, unromantic but true, is minimising the chance of catastrophe. And I, I, I use behavioural science a bit when bringing up my kids which is to say, no, 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 it's not about teaching them Mandarin Chinese when they're 11, okay? It's not about basically trying to do a kind of Ruth Lawrence on them by getting them to do quadratic equations when they're six, okay? And the reason for that is those things sometimes work, but when they don't work, they fail a lot, big time, right? Mm -hmm. And so although... If you're an optimizer, a successful optimizer has a wonderful story to tell, which is, look what I did to my kids. I trained them from an early age in this, and now they're a maths prodigy, okay? Well, parking aside the fact that do you want your kids to be a maths prodigy, because it's a pretty weird way to be, okay? Um, uh, there's the secondary question, which is actually, yes, but you, you're just one of the lucky ones. There are nine other people who tried to do what you did, and their kids are now spaced out on crack in some, you know, weird place, right? Mm. And low-variance parenting, where basically you go, effectively, if they're not a screw-up, I've done an okay job, seems to me the right approach to parenting. And so highly competitive parenting strikes me as a mistake. So it's it's very interesting what you say, because I suspect that the application of behavioral economics to relationships, whilst interesting, may miss other factors, such as uh, what I suspect is people's tendency to choose in a partner something that they recognize, you know, perhaps from, perhaps in their early childhood, which defies even that kind of subterranean logic. Um, but um, I'm conscious of time. Um, By the way, with a partner, a lot of it's going to be smell. And you're never yeah. going to know that. Yeah, I, th I think that's. I think that's probably true. Do, um, do you want? Do you want another question? Robert? Yeah, yeah. Go right ahead. So this is a, perhaps a related one. Um, so I'm very interested in your your response. What's the relationship between how you were messed up as a child, if you were, and how you might mess up your children as a, a parent? Um. 
so far, and I, I have to say so far, because, you know, the job of parenting is never entirely complete. Um, I had a pretty good childhood, which was also uh, fairly easygoing. Um, and, and it wasn't, it wasn't stupidly easygoing, but it was, you know, I wasn't really pressured by my parents all that much. Uh, and they were fairly laid back and fairly easygoing. And they weren't either ridiculously protective nor neglectful. And I copied that. Uh, my wife, I think, had a similar upbringing, fairly similar anyway. Mm. Um, and the point, you know, I'll give you an example of this. Pretty early on, I decided, okay, how do I police their use of digital media? And uh, the decision I came to, which was a mixture of simple pragmatism, idleness, and I think probably the best approach was just to say, look, I'm not going to try and police and restrict what you look at. But what I do have to ask you in return is that um, uh, you, you know, we trust you, you reciprocate. But if anything weird happens or disturbing, you let us know straight away. That's the deal. And there are two reasons for that. One, I'd noticed fairly early that the kids whose use of the internet was most highly policed simply found ways around it. Secondly, I realized that if I did want to police my kids' use of the internet, it would require pretty much every waking hour and a degree of surveillance and, um, uh, and uh, privacy invasion, which was probably unacceptable. Mm. And so I took a view of, look, you know, basically you're probably going to end up seeing some yucky stuff either by intention or accident, right? But if anything on a personal level strikes you as weird, if there's a strange club penguin conversation or whatever, okay, yeah. you have to let us know. Mm. Yeah. And so it's a, um, uh, and that's to me, what I did notice is that the children who are most heavily policed and this, by the way, applies to things other than internet use. But children who are very, very heavily policed and watched over, they're the people who, when they go to university, uh, they basically, you know, go completely bonkers. Or indeed, the moment they're outside parental supervision when they're at school. You know, yeah. um, there's a very interesting argument, by the way, which is um, Mothers Against Drunk Driving in the States had huge success in raising the drinking age limit to 21 in the in the US. And there's a corresponding campaign from other parents which says, I want my kids to get pissed for the first time when I'm around. Okay. Mm. Which is, you know, in other words, when you're in the presence of a you know a few adults and a few parents who've learned to drink responsibly and learn from their mistakes, I I think it'd be much, much better if Americans could drink at 18, as was the case mm. in a few states until recently and could therefore learn to drink while under supervision, probably in a drinking establishment which had a mixed age group. Okay, you know, one thing that stops 18 year olds in a, uh, you know, in a country pub from puking in the carpet is they get the opprobrium of 55 year olds. Okay, mm. you know, when you've got a mixed age drinking culture, people learn not to be dickheads, because it's not viewed favorably by the by the group. If people's first experience of drinking is when they're away from home, that strikes me as an incredibly dangerous problem. And actually lowering the age to 18 um, 
uh, uh, you know, you could do something else. Mothers Against Drink Driving had a very fair point, but you could do something completely different there where you just go, basically, until you're 21, you cannot drive a car if you've even had a smell of alcohol. There, are, there were other legislative solutions, and raising the drinking age to 21, I think, had uh, unintended consequences. So, um, Rory, I wanted to thank you. Um, I appreciate um, the extra time. Um, I have a very quick question. Did you have cats growing up? Were yeah, one um, particular called Mitzi. Uh, is this is this in the uh, in the really extreme question pile? Is it? No, no this is um, a personal uh, uh, theory. Weirdly, yeah. because we live on the second floor of an apartment, we're not allowed to have cats or dogs. Uh -huh. uh, although I, I don't think it excludes snakes or reptiles or something. Mm -hmm. But I miss massively having a cat. Uh, I'm probably a cat person more than a dog person, although I like both. Um, I like cats' basic sort of libertarianism and the fact that they mm. kind of exploit you um, uh, without really, you know. But um, uh, very, very fond of the cat. Why do you ask? Um, so there was a, a little-known study that found that toxoplasmosis, which is well-known, causing problems um, in pregnant women due to a parasite which migrates to your brain, mm -hmm. um, the assumption was it doesn't have any effect in normal males. But more recently, um, a piece of research found that infection with this parasite actually does alter the behavior. It be alters the behavior of hosts, which are rats, and it makes them um, much brave. less afraid. Um, yeah, make brave. Makes what brave. you want is, I understand if, if I'm right, in evolutionary terms, what toxoplasmosis wants is for precisely for the rats to get bitten by a cat or so they can or eaten by a cat so it can yeah. then pass on to its next stage yeah and it seems to alter the behavior of humans as well subtly to make them less afraid of authority more rebellious rebellious and exploratory um so i, I i'm just it's you know it's just a kind of pet theory because no, there's an interesting thing isn't there which is that two um, i did read one piece there's a czech scientist who's an expert on this and it's most common in france where um because of raw meat or undercooked meat Mm. And one of the things it leads to, apparently, is slightly um, overdone, uh, or slightly risky driving behavior seems to be one of that manifestation. <laughs> but also it seems to affect your fashion sense in some weird way. <laughs> That's interesting. I'm going to go and have a look. Uh, at definitely have a look. There's some guy at the University of Prague who's made this his life study. Now, of course, a more interesting question is the extent to which um, various microbial forms, including, of course, microbes in our gut, have a much greater effect on behavior because if you're a kind of uh, if you're a kind of bug in the gut that likes to process refined sugar and you can alter the appetite of your host organism so it craves sugar you do better in evolutionary terms yeah it's very nietzschean very um, very yeah and then yeah. another one would be um you know um, jeffrey miller has long had the theory that certain forms of uh sexually transmitted disease would alter our sexual behavior because it's mm. in the interests of the uh, uh, of the organism for people carrying it to become more pr promiscuous perhaps absolutely yeah very well well thank you very much um for your time i think i've learned lots of interesting things about you i think you're a free associator um you form connections between diverse disciplines very quickly you're anti-authoritarian and you walk this sort of tightrope between confidence and anxiety which um which i think is very interesting um so um i've really enjoyed the interview yeah i'd take confidence if it were offered to me on a plate to be absolutely honest
because anxiety is a pain in the ass. Uh, you know, if someone offered me the, you know, uh, the confidence pill, uh, by the way, paracetamol, I think, works at low doses, but apparently. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but I would, I would take that pill. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I think anxiety, or what David Ogilvy called, um, what on earth was his phrase? Uh, um, uh, divine discontent. Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, anxiety is kind of useful in healthy doses and essential in some dose, I'd argue. Um, the free association thing, the anti-authoritarian thing is interesting because it, you know, I'm kind of, I, I'm not, I'm not libertarian, pure and simple, because I don't think that works. I think that's, an, that's an oversimplification because, you know, ultimately society requires obligations of a kind. Um, but, um, uh, equally, I do have an absolute aversion to any kind of bureaucracy. Um, you know, my general view is that, um, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, any kind of sort of, uh, you know, a box ticking rule stuff um, drives me insane. And also, of course, um, uh, certain sort of the more extreme precepts of kind of woke culture and political correctness are just kind of irritating. Because I think they're an attempt to generalize something which can only be understood and indeed only corrected locally. So I think what it is, what I dislike is a is an attempt to solve top down a problem that needs to be solved bottom up. Yes, and they often have the opposite effect to that superficially intended, which is to create more division. Which is you create more division, including, by the way, among woke people themselves. Yeah, I've often thought, actually, if you got rid of left-wing politics and you replaced it with a Quaker revival, which is what a lot of millennials want, I think, deep down, they want to do <laughs> something worthwhile and they want to have a reasonable belief system, hardly ridiculous, okay? <laughs> but the great thing about a religious belief system, and bear in mind Quakerism was ahead of the game, way ahead of liberal politics on almost everything, Okay, from slavery to uh, same-sex marriage to uh, acceptance of homosexuality, for instance. Okay, Quakerism was way ahead of any kind of uh, left-wing political movement in at least debating those things. Mm -hmm. And the great, the great thing about a religion as opposed to politics is that uh, it starts with a code of conduct for yourself, which you hope more people adopt. But it achieves it through voluntary means rather than compulsion. Mm. And uh, by making change and behavioral change voluntary, it's much, much stickier than if you attempt to impose it. Yes. I'm going to I'm going to end it there, if that's okay. I suppose that's fine. It's been very fun. Um, very, very interesting. Okay. What other observations, while I'm getting you for free, what other kind of uh, analysis would you uh, uh, apply? <laughs> I think I would want to take a little more time over that Fair enough. Ask, ask a few more questions um I, I particularly like your point around uh, the value of of kind of diversity um it's something that i i value great myself it's hard to imagine that you can get real freedom of thought um without it um so that that would be a uh, another character keynote I mean, what's also very interesting is that comedians uh, are the first people to really complain about woke culture because uh, patently comedy, uh, the rule, what you do in a comedy show is you create a, co a context where, to some extent, you know, the rules are different. 
and we can all debate what that means. But essentially, you have a case in the States now where uh, Chris Rock won't play uh, student venues, university venues. Mm. Now, uh, uh, that is, in a sense, creating the idea that you can't say anything that is offensive to somebody and that you include in the definition of offensive people who are claiming to be offended who aren't really, okay? That, that sets a barrier for human free speech, which is essentially um, uh, uh, ludicrous. Mm. Because you, have, you know, when you go into a comedy show, you accept certain things are going to be, you know, that, you know, it's rather different from a job interview in terms of the rules. Yes. And I, I think that, that uh, you know, the, when you allow people to take something out of context and just say, isn't this terrible? Uh, and you go, well, kind of depends on how it's said, tone of voice, uh, everything else, really. You know, is that said self-deprecatingly or is it said maliciously? Um, depends on context. Uh, I suspect, in answer to your, your earlier question about observations, is that you and I perhaps are facing a, a similar problem, which is that our associations are now becoming fairly well-worn. You have an excellent set of kind of related stories and observations around behavioral economics, your experience in marketing, uh, and so on and so on. And as we sit here, we are both staring at a map of a territory, which is, you know, our local area. And you can see all of the little kind of paths traced over that map. And for me, at least, the challenge is becoming, how do I prevent myself simply um, going once more down the kind of the well-worn paths? How do I put myself in situations um, or challenge myself to explore new territories which are kind of uncharted um, because we now have such a good way of talking about so many different areas we we risk kind of slipping into you know the same old patterns of thinking. well yeah I mean I, I challenge I, where I try, I try and continually find new turf um, mm. it's interesting because what we are both saying I suspect unfortunately needs a hell of a lot of repetition okay yeah uh, it isn't something, you know, uh, and so if I've evolved a good way of describing something, I tend to use it again and I look for new ways. And so there's a kind of winnowing of anecdote, which mm -hmm. is if a particular anecdote, it's rather like the comedian Stuart Lee, who will experiment in stand up and he'll experiment with phraseology night after night after night until he gets something which he just thinks is kind of right. You know, describing Gary Lineker as like a velvet owl or something, okay? Now, at some level, when you do a lot of speaking, you know, you're doing that. And what you need to do, I think, is continually also uh, go out and uh, uh, and uh, challenge the – find new cow paths mm. uh, to explore. Um, and um, uh, having said which, I mean, the central message is very, very simple, which is that, you know, uh, okay, if you want to put this in a very simple anecdote, uh, when we design chairs, we design them for the evolved shape of the human body, okay? Dog chairs would be different from human chairs, right? Yes. But when we design something like a customer experience, or we design a loyalty program, or we design a tax system, or we design a, a tax-free savings incentive plan, we use economic thought alone, which pays no attention to the evolved shape of the human brain and what appeals to it and what doesn't. 
And therefore, there's a kind of huge amount of cash sitting on the table, which is an opportunity to improve the world through psychology by, as I said, finding out what the economists are wrong about. Broadly, though, I think we can design two types of customer experience. Now, user experience or UX is often used as a shorthand to refer to seamless UX, the idea being that this is a good thing. But you give an example in one of your talks about a Berlin hotel, which is where they just play the, the Big Lebowski on a loop, which is quite a disruptive thing. If you, were, if you were turning up there expecting your standard kind of Holiday Inn experience, that would be... Oh, it would have been the worst there. evening of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and so I think the, these are the things that change you. So the disruptive UX is what I'm alluding to, which is, yes, we can design a wonderful world where everything works seamlessly with the consequence that nobody will be altered by it one iota. Whereas if we deliberately engineer a disruptive experience, we have the opportunity to change and alter people in the ways that, that your Berlin hotel example illustrates. And I think with UX, probably the answer is being judiciously weird. Which mm. is, you, know, you, don't, you don't want something where every single click involves massive cognitive effort. Okay? There are certain norms which are established, like the baskets in the top right. Do you necessarily want to, you know, uh, disrupt that, okay? Um, and, and just create the risk of confusion? Probably not. But at the same time, there are judicious moments where you could completely reshape the choice architecture. I agree. If someone were to come to a dinner party at my house, I would like for something rather odd or unexpected to happen at some point. Otherwise, I think it would just be uh, instantly forgettable. So uh, one, one thing I think would be really interesting, which I think is also good for capitalism, by the way, is to have different kinds of search engine which give you a choice of algorithm. <laughs> uh, and the point there is, you know, if you go, let's say you want to buy a house, and you went to right move and you went, okay, this is, you'd have to start off with geography, wouldn't you? Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, I think 70% of people move within two or three miles of their existing house. Now, there are very, very good reasons for that community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you'll then look at a price band. You'll then look at, you know, you'll then look at number of bedrooms. You'll go through the standard formula. On the other hand, if you go to a website like the modern house, right, where the entire focus is on architecture, and nothing gets on that site unless it's at least fairly architecturally interesting. What you've done is you've completely reversed the polarity of choice so that something that was previously low down your list of attributes to eliminate becomes very high up. Well, to give a, another example, and I like that very much. Um, uh, we get a choice of, of seating on an aircraft where the choice is, do you want to be towards the front? Do you want to be near a window? Window, uh, aisle, yeah. yeah. Yeah, what, what impacts your experience of that flight will be the person you're sitting next to. And so upending that decision-making process by somehow giving you a, a choice of, um, of, let's say, conversational partner or, or the opposite, somebody who's highly unlikely to engage you in conversation, would, would be an interesting way of reframing that experience. By the way, I think they have started to do something intriguingly, which is there's a new airline which has made uh, the middle seat wider than the island window seat. <laughs> now, what's ingenious about that is there's an advantage to being in the window seat. You can lean against the wall and you can look out of the window. There's an advantage to being in an aisle seat. Um, what, of course, happened when you um, uh, when most planes went to a three 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 configuration in economy is uh, a third of the people are in middle seats where there's no virtue at all. If mm. you create some virtue to it, 
and I think there it's also set slightly to the back um so that you get a sort of little degree of privacy in that you're not being jostled by the elbows of the people um uh, sitting either side of you by doing that what you've done very cleverly is you've created uh, the opportunity for adaptive preference formation hmm. well um i've enjoyed this immensely um i better let you go well catch yeah. up i'd love to have a coffee it'd be really fantastic thanks Roy. have a good day you too all the best and thank you very much indeed <laughs>